You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, we analyze all 43 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.8, Attack on Titan, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I may not think much of SD Gundam Gaiden, but I do think that more mecha should wield lances. It's peak design, so I'm torn. And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam, and at this point, wishing there were a little JRPG or turn-based strategy game version of SD Gundam Gaiden that I could play. It's making me nostalgic. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 595 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Everett L., Dan, and Snow. Oh no, we dropped below 600. I guess you all really hate SD Gundam. You knew we were going to get here eventually. You all knew what was going to happen. Special thanks this week to Taliarchus for sending us a beautiful card, and Frankie Teardrop for getting us two books from our wish list, and to a couple of returning patrons and people who increased their pledges. Thank you so much. MSB is entirely listener-supported. If you would like us to eventually finish SD Gundam and move on to other things, and to eventually reach the Gundam of the 2000s, 2010s, and beyond, Become a monthly subscriber today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This week we follow the ongoing adventures of Knight Gundam and his brave companions in episode 2 of SD Gundam Gaiden, Densetsu no Kyojin, or The Giant of Legend. This episode 2 was released in late May 1990, two months after LaCroix and Hero, and was made by the same team. There are a few interesting members of the voice cast that I ought to mention. At the top of the bill, Night Gundam was played by the prolific Matsumoto Yasunori. This is his first role on Gundam, but he will eventually take on a role that may be more familiar to many of you, Alejandro, in Gundam 00. Likewise making their Gundam debuts are Fairy Kika's voice actor, Kanai Mika, and Jim Sniper Custom's voice, Takagi Wataru. A staple on kids' shows like Pokemon and Anpanman, Kanai will eventually return to Gundam to play Tifa in Gundam X, and Takagi, a recurring character on Detective Conan and Initial D, will be back to play opposite her as Garod. Koyasu Takehito, the voice of Knight Sazabi, who appeared briefly in LaCroix Hero last episode, is also making his first appearance in Gundam. He will, however, go on to play a variety of characters, Zex in Wing, Jim in Turn A, and Mulaflaga in Seed, among others. Nemo, or Nemo the martial artist, was played by Yamashita Keisuke in his only Gundam role. He is, perhaps, best known for voicing a whole litany of Monsters of the Week in the Kamen Rider franchise. Finally, 
While Knight Amuro and Knight Shar are both played by their original voice actors, some of the other human cast members have been replaced. Princess Fra was voiced by Matsui Naoko, the former Ruluka, and Knight Sela is Hara Eriko, the former Elviano. Now, Nina's recap. In a bustling desert town, a red mobile suit steals the crystal ball from a local soothsayer, Sarasa. Shar chases the thief and tries to retrieve the orb, but in the struggle that follows, his helmet and mask are knocked from his head, revealing cat ears and cat-like eyes with vertical slitted pupils. The mobile suit gets away with the crystal ball. Cheerful after the success of their last mission, our heroes are horrified to discover that Lacroix was attacked in their absence. A giant smashed its way through the town, leaving only fire, rubble, and the groans of the wounded in its wake. The king lies in the remnants of the castle, injured but alive. He tells them that long ago, the giant was created to help one side win a great battle, but in the end it destroyed enemies and allies alike. When the battle was over, the giant slept, and a hero took the giant's soul to prevent it waking up. That soul has since been hidden by a prophet, the Star of Rufoy. Now they must seek out this prophet, whose identity is secret, and find a way to stop the giant. They search the towns at the edge of the desert, talking to any fortune tellers they find. It's one charlatan after another until they reach a town in ruins, another victim of the giant's destructive power. There, they find Sarasa. She is badly hurt and, eyes closed, she only murmurs, Giant, Red Knight, Crystal Ball, over and over. The Knight Gundam believes Sarasa is the Star of Rufoy. If something was taken from her, it must have been the giant's soul. Horses race down the street outside, a mysterious golden mobile suit chasing after the red mobile suit that stole the Crystal Ball. Could that be the Red Knight Sarasa mentioned? The Lacroan heroes follow the horsemen into the desert. A fairy named Kika appears to them, begging them to forgive the giant and leave it alone. It doesn't want to fight anyone. When they ask her where the giant is, she refuses to tell them and disappears. Farther into the desert, they come upon the Red Knight, standing at the top of a dune. Joined by his allies, who come up over the crest of the dune or emerge from their hiding places in the sand, he attacks. During the fighting, an enemy spellcaster summons a massive, whirling sandstorm, and three of the Lacroan heroes are captured and taken away. The rest add, find our friends, to their already long list of mission objectives, and continue to search the desert. At a small oasis, they find the Jim family, who tell them that the giant is in a stone castle somewhere nearby. Kika reappears, willing to tell them the castle's location if they swear to help the giant rest. Before they go, they ask if Kika can give them the legendary fairy weapon that was used to subdue the giant last time, the Bow of Light. But it seems the giant's guardian sealed away the weapon's power. It cannot help them. On reaching the castle, the Lacroix and heroes, joined by the mysterious golden mobile suit, fight their way in, 
searching for the giant and for their friends. They find both in a huge stone chamber, their friends tied to crosses, the giant looming over them. Woken by one of the villains, a Mesala sorcerer, the giant attacks, but it flinches back when a torch is waved in its face. Fire is the key. They douse the giant in oil and light it on fire, and it melts down into a heap, a shining mirror poking out from the sludge. But that was only the mud giant. Another giant rises from these remnants and starts to bring the castle down around them, eventually crashing through a wall and into the desert outside. Fairy Kika tries to get the giant to stop, shouting, These people are your friends! And the giant pauses for a moment, but the sorcerer exerts control once more, until the golden mobile suit charges up, slicing the sorcerer's staff and stabbing through the gem in the sorcerer's forehead. Yet the giant does not stop. While the other heroes struggle to evade the giant's attacks, Sela, Wood Elf Gym Sniper Custom, and Fairy Kika come up with a plan. The mud giant must have been the giant's guardian, and the mirror is the key to unlocking the Bow of Light's power. Jim Sniper retrieves the mirror, Kika summons the bow, and Sela drags the magical weapon to the Night Gundam. In the hands of anyone but the prophesied hero, the bow becomes impossibly heavy. A single shot from the Bow of Light defeats the giant, and it crashes to the ground before crumbling to dust. The giant sleeps, and its soul, the crystal ball, is retrieved from the dust and returned to Sarasa. Despite their victory, still more enemies lurk in the shadows. Will the Lacroan heroes ever get to the bottom of these threats and secure peace for the realm? Tune in next week for the penultimate episode of SD Gundam Gaiden. I know this is just because I have been stewing in Elden Ring for the past month, but the fight between the Night Gundam and the Psycho Golem, or, you know, whatever iteration of the Golem they're fighting, the Mud Golem, uh, really feels like a video game boss fight, doesn't it? Big, scary guy slowly swinging his arms around as our heroes dodge roll to safety. And get crushed and get knocked backwards and have to run away. Yeah, I mean, look, it's only their first try at this boss fight. They need to learn the mechanics. They need to get them down. And then they can come back and they can just run right through them. There's a bunch of different stages. You have to get people into all the right positions with that little light reflecting trick. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That feels more like an MMO. That feels like a, a raid. Got to do the mechanics. Which then conjures a special weapon, which then one member of the raid party has to carry to whoever's going to use it. And obviously that imposes a severe debuff on your movement speed because it's so heavy. You know, we saw Sailor really struggling with that one. I found that so funny where she's like <laughs> limping along while the Gundam Knight is just like running pell-mell away. The limitations of the SD style mean they can only do so much with Sela's like body when she's carrying the heavy thing. So she really is just sort of like waddling. Waddling. <laughs> it works. It no, looks yeah, like it she's does. carrying something very heavy. 
yet it also conveys that she is like strong and determined you know you see people in the gym doing like a farmer's carry where you have a a heavy thing in each hand and you just kind of walk with them that's what it looks like absolutely when the bow and arrow of light first appears and they're like oh no Sela, you can't use this only the special one can use this i was a bit disappointed i wanted Sela to get to do something because for someone who is so cool and strong in all of her iterations she so rarely gets to do things she gets into a lot of duels that's true in the sd gaiden that we've seen so far the two episodes (laughs) okay but everybody pair off and have a duel is apparently just like shorthand for the stakes are raised because both sd gundam gaiden episodes now have done this They've gotten to the to the, you know, big fight at the end. And it's like, okay, now we need to isolate the hero so that he can do hero stuff. Everybody pair off with your thematically matched opponent. Incidentally, though, this also gives Shar and the that's a Hyakushiki, right? Is that Shar in armor or is it a Hyakushiki? Well, that seems like it would be a spoiler for me to answer that. Okay, because It says to one of their enemies, you saw something you shouldn't. So it knows about them seeing Cat Char, (laughs) which... Catboy Char. uh, Char as Nyanbul. Yes. Uh, So it either is Char or knows about what happened and is riding a horse, but not a white horse. Char's horse was white. Mm -hmm. And so are they partners is it the same person transformed we know that mobile suits are independent characters in this short so it could be his like mobile suit buddy true true although i think it's the same voice i think they're both ikeda shuichi and the voice of the hyakushiki is muffled in a way that the other mobile suit voices are not suggesting the possibility of a helmet i did wonder about that uh And yet again, comes to the aid of many of the people involved in this adventure. Though in kind of an an ambiguous, I'm doing my own thing and it just happens to help you out kind of way. Except for there at the end, helping with that light reflecting trick. Nobody asks him to get into position. He sees what they're doing and he goes there of his own accord. And he doesn't even meet up with them afterwards. It's not like, yeah, we did it. He just (laughs) runs off again. First of all, I really liked the light reflecting trick. Like... I thought that was a particularly clever bit. It was cool. And of course, the Hyakushiki or Hyakusharki form (laughs) is the, you know, that's his quattro moment. That's his take on a new secret identity and be mostly good for a while. Do we suppose that Catboy Char has been cursed like Sela was cursed? Hmm, perhaps. I also noticed one of the enemies... The one with the very Kaecilia-like face mask. Mm, mm-hmm. That helmet could be imagined to have cat ears. It's got Indeed. little pointy bits in cat ear position. This is going to be me getting into the background lore a little bit. That's not actually Kaecilia. That's McVeigh. I knew it wasn't actually Kaecilia because it's too masculine a voice and outfit and the rest of it. Right. But I did not. It would never have occurred to me that it was supposed to be McVeigh. Yes. And it's McVeigh by way of a parody of a villain from the old Gachaman show whose name was Berg Katz. And so it's McVeigh Katz. And hence, I believe, the cat ears. Mm, got it. And it's cats like the German or Jewish surname. But 
cats sounds like cats. And so, you know, that's that's the joke they're doing there. Um, I have seen some confusion about why Char is a cat boy. Not in the sense of like, has he been cursed? Was he born that way? But like meta production, why did they make Char a cat? Um, and I don't know the solid answer for this, but I have two guesses. One of which is that his name, his last name is Asnable and Asniable would be a good pun for the sound that cats make. Also, in addition to being an onomatopoeia for peeing, sha is also a sound that cats make in Japanese. Oh, so like, it's not meow because that's nyan. Like, oh, sha is their hissing sound. Got exactly. It. At this point, they've had some time to see how Catboy Camille played out. <laughs> and if Catboy Camille was even a fraction as popular as I imagine he was, they might have been thinking, okay, people love <laughs> these Catboys. More Catboys. SD Gundam was clearly ahead of its time. You brought up video games earlier, and I wanted to revisit that because this episode has me thinking about the depictions of deserts in a bunch of Japanese fictional media, that it's popped up in Gundam several times. There are frequently desert levels in popular video games, in Mario, in RPGs, desert levels are a big thing. Uh, and not even just desert levels, but inspiration from like North African and Bedouin culture. Mm -hmm. The dancers in some games are frequently modeled on dancers from that region. Obviously, like sexed up and not accurate, but there's a clear line of inspiration. Sure. And even within the Gundam universe, the shot of the like desert oasis town at the beginning of this episode looks a lot like the desert towns that the Gundam team visited in Double Zeta. Except that this desert town seems to be populated entirely by white people. And some mobile suits. <laughs> so the question in my mind, of course, is, is it just that most people don't have a lot of exposure to deserts, and so it's something different and something exotic as a setting for something fantastical or a video game? Or is there like a specific Japanese fascination with North Africa? Hmm. Or is it just like, ooh, exotic deserts? Well, I imagine a lot of it is actually that those kinds of fantasy adventure role-playing video games are borrowing from a really long tradition of adventure stories and a lot of those adventure stories come out of sources like A Thousand and One Nights or other sources from the North Africa, Middle East region. What comes to mind immediately for me as an example of that kind of story, though it is a more contemporary retelling, is the movie Secondhand Lions, mm -hmm. uh, wherein a boy's great uncles slowly over the course of several months of him living with them tell him about all of these wild adventures they got up to when they were young men, which included being shanghaied into the French Foreign Legion and fighting in North Africa. But like, think about the stories that we grew up on. How many of those contained, say, a quicksand pit that the adventurers get trapped in? The desert is a, a classic setting for those kinds of adventures because it is so, like, hostile. The lifelessness of it makes it feel that much more hostile and frightening. It feels like an alien landscape as much as any landscape on Earth can feel that way. And for those of us who grew up consuming media in the sort of, you know, long-standing European tradition, the desert is like 
the the boundary, the edge of what people defined as civilization. Whatever was in the desert and beyond the desert was strange and dangerous. And historically speaking, some of what was beyond the desert was these incredibly sophisticated and wealthy civilizations and nations that were at the same time isolated from the European storytellers. And so it's like suddenly Mansa Musa appears out of the desert with more gold than anyone in the world has ever seen. That could inspire the imagination. As could thinking about the cultures who live in the desert. You know, what kind of a people live in such a hostile, <laughs> scary place? And obviously, local people are often very well adapted to their environments. They know all the tricks. They know how to manage it. But to people who don't know those environments, there's something so impressive but also mysterious about someone who could live like that. And the adventurer, the hero, is set apart from the rest of their society in part by their ability to go to these dangerous, hostile environs and learn to adapt to them. I did think it was funny, though. At one point, the characters are like, well, we don't know what to do. Let's just go to the desert and see what happens. And if I'm giving the writers of this short the most possible credit, maybe that is meant to be a send-up of you know, bad plotting in video games where the solution is always just go to the next area and kill things until story happens. But when you make a parody of something that is bad, you always have to be very careful that you are not yourself doing the bad thing. And in this case, I don't think they managed that. I think they just didn't have any ideas for how to advance the plot properly. And so they just said, hey, let's go and see what happens. You have to admit, the fight in the desert was a little bit funny, though. It had its moments. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. There are not a lot of jokes in this episode. No. It is not a particularly funny episode. I got the impression that the various soothsayers and fortune tellers they go to before they find Sarasa are meant to be funny because they're so ridiculous and clearly not actually capable of telling people anything that they've read in the fire or in the crystal ball. Uh, but I didn't find them particularly funny. I kind of liked the first one with the, the flames. And the Buddhist chanting. Mm -hmm. Or Buddhish. <laughs> <laughs> I did appreciate Sarasa just, just being sick for no reason. They took her orb. <laughs> She's jonesing for contemplating the orb. Truly is reason enough. It's weird to have Sarasa and not Rasara. Missed opportunity. But one of them is dead. Maybe not in this canon. A little ghost wiggles in. Hey, guys. I appreciate that they're trying to do something a little bit more serious, but I don't think this is the format for it. I really think SD works better when it's being funny, even if I don't always like the jokes. With two episodes of Gaiden behind us, they're just, like, solidly fine. They're not terrible. I mean, there's some questionable stuff in them, but they're not terrible. They're decently well executed. They're well animated. The music is great. Come back to that. But there's just nothing like special about them. Why would you watch this when there are a million better fantasy stories to watch instead? It's got Gundams in it. <laughs> yeah, so far, there haven't been many SD Gundam shorts. And so far, n none of the Gaiden stuff that I would tell people like, oh, you should definitely watch this if you want a comprehensive understanding of Gundam. I might do some like one or two of the earlier ones just to convey like, this is what SD <laughs> is. And it was very popular. Uh-huh. Uh, and then when they ask, 
but why? <laughs> we would just sort of sit there like, the late 80s were a weird time, okay? It's worth remembering, one, the primacy of merchandising for these shorts. Yeah. Like, a lot of this was about new designs so that you could issue new toys so that you could get people to buy more. And it is for a different market from the actual original Gundam shows. Like, the prices of the home video releases kind of throw a spanner into all of this, as well as the, like, weird sexual content, the BDSM and all of that. But it does feel like, for the most part, SD is aimed at young kids. When I was looking for an explanation for why Camille is a cat boy who talks weird, I saw a bunch of people, like a ton of people on the Japanese side of the fandom saying basically, SD Gundam was my exposure to Gundam. I didn't watch Zeta or First Gundam or mm -hmm. Double Zeta until years and years later. And I was shocked and dismayed to find <laughs> out how different it was from the Gundam that I had grown up on. Did SD Gundam air on television at all? Was it shown on TV? I don't think so, but okay. I don't know for certain. It, there is a possibility that it was aired like as a, as a special mm. one-off kind of thing. The more I think about it, the adult and adultish content doesn't necessarily seem like it precludes these from having been made for children. Uh, if I think back to cartoons I watched when I was a child, there were certainly plenty of adult jokes uh, <laughs> snuck in there for the benefit of parents and people actually working on the movies. That's true. But another explanation that I thought of for the sort of blandness of SD, when we think about old TV shows, you know, we remember certain landmark properties, but it's worth remembering how much stuff gets made that's entirely unremarkable and mostly forgotten about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, created to fill a time slot or a demographic gap in somebody's uh, slate of programming. And it doesn't need to be anything other than decent. And so that's all it is. Sure. You know, this was a period of time when home video was expanding in a big way. Uh, I think we might still be within the time when Bandai was running their own network of video shops. And these were available for rental. So that would have expanded the, you know, the group of people who could afford to watch these very significantly. I definitely saw an interview. I don't remember whether it was with Takamatsu or with Amino, but one of them definitely said he got instructions from, you know, the producers, from the brass, that said, like, make whatever you want. Anything with SD Gundam on it is going to sell. Let's say some nice things about this episode. Okay, first, one more thing related to sort of animation and production quality. I'm sure those of you watching along have gotten pretty good at pinpointing little things about the way the animation is made that allow them to use more limited animation techniques. There were certainly some of those on display here, but I was especially struck by the length of the end sequence, two and a half minutes with the credits overlaid and almost no dialogue except for the confrontation at the very end revealing our next villain, as each subsequent has been defeated, some new one has been revealed, taunting and threatening Gundam Knight. <laughs> In addition to that time and labor-saving innovation with the credits, I noticed they get through this whole episode with only one line from Amaro's voice actor, Furuya Toru, and like six lines from Ikeda Shuichi. There's a lot of that Hyakushiki character not saying anything. And when he does talk, it tends to be very short and it tends to be like muffled. 
I don't think he actually recorded those lines over the phone, but <laughs> there was definitely an effort to uh, minimize the amount of recording that either of those two had to do. Presumably, they are the busiest and most expensive people on the cast. All right, you wanted to talk about some nice things. I love that the Jim Henson family has a ball as a pet. <laughs> There's a little leash tied to it. It's their dog, I guess. Yep. Dog ball. Ball dog. Uh I'm going to see if I can parse it out. I picked up a particular kind of accent from Jim Henson. Mm -hmm. And it's not one that I recognize. I don't know if it's a particular dialect or uh, regional speech or what exactly it might be. But I am going to see if I can figure out what that is. That would be cool if you were able to do it. I really like Fairy Kika. Yes. Uh, it is funny thinking about how exactly they would make Kika chibi, though, when <laughs> she was pretty much already chibi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, they make her body even more potato-y, and they shorten her limbs and make it so they're, like, broader, closer to her body, and then narrow to really tiny hands and feet. Her costume is identical, except that she's wearing anklets now. <laughs> And she's got wings. Well, yes, she has wings. I liked Fairy Kika a lot. She just wants to protect the giant. He's not bad. He's just grumpy. He's been led astray. Um, and I, I thought the voice actor for Fairy Kika also turned in really good work. The other design element I particularly enjoyed was the design of the castle that's in the middle of the storm in mm. the desert. Uh, can't entirely tell if it was a built castle that's been worn smooth by the wind and the sand or some sort of weird natural rock formation <laughs> that has been carved into and built into a castle. I got the vibe of rock formation that's been carved into. It makes me think of cities like Petra. But when they're inside it, you can see like stone walls that have been like cut into blocks and set upon each other. Mm. <laughs> when the... <laughs> When they're inside and the giant rises up out of the ground against that wall, uh, there's an MG written over it, which I looked at Tom and just blurted out, Master Grade? But no, the Master Grade line didn't start until 1995, five whole years after this one. It is in fact Mado Goremu, or Mud Golem. Yes, if you thought maybe... The weird religion stuff was confined to that first episode, you would be wrong. Yeah, let's do a check-in on weird religion stuff. Once again, the villains are uh, vaguely Jewish coded. I confess I don't know much about the Golem stories or the like history of those stories and various famous retellings, but I'm probably going to research it this week and it's commonly known to be like an animated construct associated with Judaism that's a built to save and help and protect people, but that can also cause great destruction. Given the setup, even before Kika explicitly calls it the psycho golem, I was already thinking it was a golem metaphor. <laughs> and they talk about, oh, this side built it to help them win, but then it wound up destroying everything. And like the Star of David in the prior episode, there are other explanations for how it wound up here. like. If you're doing a fantasy setting and you're going to have a giant robot, Golem is one of the things that it makes sense to call it because it has that sort of fantasy mystic creation story. 
but is still a construct. It's not biological. Right. It's animate, but not in the way that humans and animals are. Yeah. And you could call it a colossus or a titan, but you could also call it a golem. And it was adopted into other pop media franchises long before this. And so SD Gundam Gaiden could have been getting it from one of those sources, could have had no idea of its Jewish origins. It's just that these things are compounding. Everyone after another makes the plausibility of an innocent origin for the others that much harder to swallow. Or at least a, I don't know about innocent or not innocent, but a deliberate or not deliberate. Uh, that's a much better word choice, yes. Each one makes the possibility of a non-deliberate origin seem less likely. Because this episode also has a crucifixion scene. And you know, Ultraman did crucifixes, Evangelion is going to do crucifixes. Like, sometimes it's for reasons and sometimes it's for vibes, but like, come on. The other influence I considered, though of course it's interconnected, was Frankenstein, uh, which, have to admit, I haven't read. But in various other depictions of the character from the Mary Shelley novel, Frankenstein's monster is depicted as afraid of fire. The psycho golem is afraid of fire. They notice this, and that's how they're able to destroy the, like, clay guardian around the, like, core psycho golem. And, of course, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, also influenced by golem stories of Jewish origin. And the media depictions of both Frankenstein's monster and of golems are related. <laughs> so knowing whether it is one or the other of both of those is probably impossible. Yeah, this is all a giant serpent eating its own tail. Infinitely. What mobile suit was the wolf? Oh, that was a bound dock. Oh, <laughs> of course. I wonder why the Night Gundam gets to wear the sacred regalia three treasures now without suffering the strain that doing it in the first episode caused. All those ill effects. Mm-hmm. I did wonder about the mirror because the... <laughs> so the three treasures... I mean, a lot of stories have things happen in threes or items in threes. It's a number humans like. It feels substantial and significant. But it did make me think of the Japanese imperial treasures which are a sword, a mirror, and a jewel. Because the Night Gundam has a jewel in the helm, a sword, and a shield. But, you know, the difference between a Bronze Age mirror and a shield is mostly one of size <laughs> more than <laughs> anything else. But then here they introduce an actual mirror mirror and the bow and arrow. So now it's getting complicated. Now we have five magical treasures. They're not going to use that bow of light again. The golem has already been defeated. I really liked the music in this episode, but it felt very different from any music that we've had before. It's like rockin', especially in the beginning. I didn't notice it as much in this episode. Um, it still sounded a bit like video game music to me, but less so than the previous episode and less uh, kind of stereotypically fantasy. I guess to me it felt less like video game music and more like the kind of this like hard driving, very in your face rock music, something that would not be out of place in the movie Heavy Metal or even like the Transformers the movie 1986. Sort of late 80s to early 90s rock music. Yeah, yeah. Starting to lean into those like synthesizer sounds. Yeah. 
All right, so what do you think? This next enemy, is it actually just a disembodied Xeon symbol with eyeballs floating <laughs> floating in the air like a ghost or a specter? Hmm. No. No. Because they have to give us something exciting. There has to be a, a further reveal. I don't know. If we're doing stereotypical video game settings, a haunted manor mm. would be a classic, and mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. ghostly Xeon symbol <laughs> could be a great boss in a haunted manor. Well, I wonder if we're going to see any haunted manors in future SD Gundam episodes. Only time will tell. And now, Nina's research on the Golem myth and its modern interpretations. The Golem is an enduring and popular figure with hundreds of adaptations, including short stories, books, comics, operas, musical scores, and films, depicting versions of the Golem tale. Robert G. Viner describes the Golem as the prototypical superhero, but Golems are also depicted as monsters. In some versions, the Golem is an anti-technology metaphor, in others, it's a story about the hubris of trying to mimic the divine act of creation. Endings range from tragic to triumphant. But is there an original version? And of the adaptations, do any provide clear inspiration for the version of the Golem that appears in this episode of SD Gundam Gaiden? The term Golem appears in the Bible, in Psalms, and refers to an unfinished human, the sort of raw stuff that makes us up before the spirit makes us people. The term also appears in the Talmud, in the story of the creation of Adam, formed of mud and dust before being given life. The contemporary meaning, that a golem is an animated, anthropomorphic construct, and the related legends are thought to date from the Middle Ages and are associated with Jewish mysticism, especially Kabbalah. The key elements of these golem stories and legends are, one, a devout, learned rabbi or teacher creates a golem to help his community in some way, and two, the golem becomes animate and does some stuff. Almost every other detail of the story is variable. The tales are set in any number of different cities. Sometimes the rabbi is unnamed. Other times the credited rabbi was a real person, with written accounts backdating the story by hundreds of years so they can blur the line between history and myth. Sometimes the golem is brought to life with a word inscribed on its forehead. Other times, the word is written on a slip of paper and put into the golem's mouth, or the animating words are spoken aloud. The earliest versions tend to depict the golem as a perfect servant, but too literal in following directions, very similar to the animate tools in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. But then in the 16th century, more and more stories depict the golem as a savior and protector of the Jewish community. Sometimes the golem goes on a rampage, or even kills its creator. In most stories, the golem is destroyed or deactivated at the end, but not in all of them. Sometimes the golem is deactivated but left ready, in case it should ever be needed again. Other details, what the golem is made of, whether or not it can speak, usually not, whether it harms its creator, its creator's enemies, or both, and how exactly the golem is deactivated, all vary. Jakob Grimm, of Brothers Grimm fame, wrote a version of the Golem story for a literary and folklore journal in 1808, in which the Golem does all manner of cleaning and chores, very reliably, 
but gets larger and stronger every day, so that its creators are frequently deactivating it, making it smaller again, and reactivating it. But they get careless, and the golem grows so tall that they cannot reach its forehead anymore to rub out the word there. The master tricks the golem, telling it to take off its boots, and when it leans down to do so, he is able to rub out the word on its forehead, at which point the massive clay falls over and crushes the master. One of my sources describes this version as the first coherent literary narrative about the golem. The Golem of Prague is now the most dominant version, but it didn't become so until the 19th century. In 1847, Leopold Weissel's Der Golem, a collection of Jewish tales of Prague, was published and was a huge success, with multiple editions published over the following 60 years. In this version, R. Judah Löw, a rabbi and the Maharal or teacher of Prague, an actual person but who was not known for study of Kabbalah in his own time or any similar practices, built various constructs to act as servants in his home and at the local synagogue. Such servants did not require wages or food, they worked tirelessly and uncomplainingly, However, it was still essential that they not work on the Sabbath, and so just before the Sabbath began, the golem would be deactivated. Then, one week, Rabbi Lev forgets, and the golem goes on a rampage, destroying houses, uprooting trees, and generally wreaking havoc on the community. When the rabbi is finally able to stop the golem, he decides never to create such servants again, and to this day, the remnants of the golem remain in the attic of Prague's oldest synagogue. Even once Prague and Lev become core parts of the story, there are still lots of variations, including one set in 1580 during a blood libel against the Jews of Prague. Malicious rumors were spread that Jews consumed the blood of Christian children. Local Jews were forced into ghettos, denied freedom of movement, and attacked and killed by the local populace, with no recourse and no one to help them. Rabbi Liv creates the golem, and it fights back against those attacking Jews, and destroys those who spread the blood libel. Gentile residents of Prague become afraid to go out, fearing what the golem might do to them. This prompts the emperor to enact laws to prevent persecution of Jews, so that the golem is no longer necessary. It is deactivated, but kept, in case it should ever be needed again. It's the 19th century versions written by non-Jewish authors that are associated with German romanticism and with Gothic motifs, which go on to influence everything from stories like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein to early monster movies. More recent variations and interpretations crop up in works by Jorge Luis Borges, Eli Wiesel, Michael Chabon, and Terry Pratchett. There are comics and graphic novels, ranging from indie to projects by Marvel and DC. The Marvel Comics version, in particular, has some striking connections to SD Gundam guidance. It was a brief run, only three issues, one guest appearance, and then a short storyline in the Invaders World War II series. And the first Golem issue was Strange Tales number 174 in 1974. It uses the Golem of Prague's story, then expands on it, having the Golem leave Prague and venture out into the world, fighting injustice everywhere, before eventually, quote, going into the desert to die. A professor with his nephew, niece, and niece's boyfriend goes searching for the golem. They find it in a region that is a battleground, and caught between the two opposing sides, the professor is shot. As he is dying, he recites, quote, the divine Kabbalistic alphabets of the 221 gates and sheds a tear which falls upon the golem's foot, 
bringing the golem to life. The Marvel golem is somewhat self-aware, is afraid of and hurt by fire, and is being hunted by an evil wizard who wants to control the golem himself. Oh, and the Marvel golem is purple. The third golem issue, Strange Tales number 177, recounts a story where, quote, the golem is a giant with a Star of David as his belt buckle and the Holy Word on his forehead. Shooting the gem on the psycho golem's forehead is not so different from rubbing out or destroying a Holy Word written there. And in Marvel 2-in-1, number 11, from 1975, the golem appears alongside The Thing from the Fantastic Four, aka Ben Grimm, who is also Jewish. And at one point, while rampaging around Florida, the golem uses telepathy to tell Grimm that he doesn't want to fight, but is being forced by the evil wizard. Now, American comics are not hugely popular in Japan, but they do have a following, and there were enough parallels there to be compelling. Then again, German fairy tales had a period of intense popularity, so maybe it was one of those versions instead. But as I looked through lists of adaptations, variations, and derivative works, I also discovered the Daimajin series of kaiju, or giant monster, films. This trilogy, Daimajin, Return of Daimajin, and Daimajin Strikes Again, were all shot and released in 1966, produced by Daiei Films. In these, Daimajin is a spirit or demon that inhabits a giant stone figure. In the first installment, Daimajin is trapped in the side of a mountain when it is called upon to defend a nearby village from subjugation by an evil and cruel lord. When a clay mask is removed from the figure's face, it rises from the mountain and attacks the lord and his fortress. But, quote, Daimajin's wrath begins to grow to attacking everything in sight, only stopping when a young woman's tears land on Daimajin's feet. The second movie follows a similar pattern, although in this one, the evil lord and his men try to preemptively destroy Daimajin, shattering the statue with gunpowder. But Daimajin's shattered remains still awaken and inflict indiscriminate destruction on the local landscape as well as on the evil lord. In the third, Daimajin's wrath is directed at those who haven't shown it proper respect, and so the villagers are spared, while the local lord, who has been capturing and enslaving men from the village, is destroyed. The first of these films involves captured villagers tied to crosses, and Daimajin crumbling into rubble when it ceases to rampage. Its mask in the first film resembles the faces of ancient clay Haniwa figures. Although the Daimajin movies seem like the most obvious inspiration for the portrayal of the psycho golem, the overt inclusion of the Star of David in the first episode, and the name psycho golem rather than some other term for the giant, makes me think there must have been some more explicitly Jewish version of the golem story incorporated into the episode as well. Which version? Probably only the writers could tell you. <laughs> this is really tricky because there are enough Jewish or Christian symbols that when you pile them all up, it starts to seem very likely that there is actually a, a reference to an explicitly Jewish or Christian source. But there are also so many other possible vectors by which these things might have all coalesced into the same show. There are so many possible interlocutors. One that occurred to me just now when you were talking about the Marvel Comics origin and that crossover with The Thing from Fantastic Four. In Dragon Quest, the first one, there is an enemy boss, the Golem, uh, and it becomes a recurring enemy in Dragon Quest games thereafter. 
given the Dragon Quest parallels we've identified in SD Gundam before, I think that's a very plausible route by which the name Golem could have gotten into SD Gundam Gaiden. The Golem in Dragon Quest doesn't really look anything like the Psycho Golem or Daimajin, but it looks a heck of a lot like the thing. One of the things that occurred to me while I was reading about Golem stories and about folklore and about how, especially when stories have this amorphous quality, they're kind of adapted to all sorts of different places and cultures. Almost every society that's ever existed has made little clay figures. And the idea of then animating those figures is certainly not specific to any one culture. There, There is a certain sort of transmissibility in the idea that makes it very well suited to being adapted and changed and moved about. I certainly had had no idea that there were so many different versions of the story and all of them with sort of different message, different purpose. And it's entirely possible that SD Gundam Gaiden's creators got the idea of tying the villagers to crosses from Daimajin and the name Golem from Dragon Quest, and that they got the Orbis Crucigur on King Revel's hat from some medieval art, and the Star of David from some, you know, mysticism source. It could all be a coincidence. Often our attempts to trace influences to any particular other work fail, right? There's no way for us to know exactly, uh, except for a, a few very fun incidences where we can. But I was going to say, part, remember remember that one about the cactus flower? <laughs> I'm saying there are some, but often as not, we can't trace things to one particular influence. But anytime we dig in to these topics, we always find out really interesting other works, layers, history that we wouldn't have known if we hadn't gone looking. Next time on episode 6.8, Night Errant. We research and discuss SD Gundam Gaiden episode 3 and... Oh ho ho Jo-sama! Two houses, both alike in dignity. Unicorn Gundam. An Ent. Sleeping Beauty's Castle. Three-part harmony. Orochi boss fight, rider in the sky, tentacles, and you should have killed me when you had the chance. This served no purpose, but nevertheless. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is A Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. I don't know, Nina, is it ever going to be safe to share wrong Gundam opinions with the world again? Wrong opinions like, 
SD Gundam Gaiden, in which a character with no memory of his past awakens in a medieval fantasy world and discovers that he is the legendary hero of legend, can be seen as a predecessor to the modern isekai genre. If people don't share wrong Gundam opinions like that, then they're just gonna keep building up inside until something terrible happens. I have kind of an idea for a way to start. Do you have one? Not really. Okay. <clears throat> Alright, Gundam, Gundam, Gundam. Gundam cartoons. It's only just barely a Gundam cartoon. Well, okay then. And I don't have my aunt. You're just Nina this week. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough for you people? <laughs> What immediately flaps, flaps. <laughs> what immediately flaps to mine, <laughs> like a bat. <laughs> That's what my thoughts are. They're bats flitting through the, the cave of my mind. What word did I want? Flash. That I said, Flash. Thank you. <laughs> like, I don't even know what word that was meant to be. All right, we're recording, so we can't say anything mean about dolphins now. On the off chance that there are some dolphins in the audience. You never know. Dolphins could like podcasts. Early access to episodes, exclusive community Discord that Tom and I even participate in, in case you wondered. <laughs> you can't tell them all the things. We got to incentivize them to go to the website. Okay, two of the things. I told them two of the things. Yes, the threat remains. Cliffhanger. Cue next episode. But in addition to that uh, sort of time and labor saving uh that time and labor, labor, that time and labor saving, Sa labor saving, La labor saving, labor saving is a Gundam name. Right. I don't know why I always say consistency is the bugbear of little minds. Apparently, it's actually hobgoblin. Ha! Consistency is the owl bear of small minds. Should we talk about golems? Uh, probably. It's literally our job this week to talk about <laughs> golems. <laughs>